<coughs> Just a couple of things uh, by, by way of um, preface, I suppose. Uh, re- review, going back, I think, right to the beginning. So, emptiness, teachings of emptiness, practices on emptiness <coughs> are tools. Tools. Fundamentally, they are tools. And that's <coughs> all they are. They are in the service of freeing us from suffering, in the service of uh, uh, opening, uh, uh, enlarging our capacity to give uh, to love. (coughs) And there are many emptiness tools, as we've been going through, but there are many tools in the sort of uh, toolkit of, of the Dharma. Many, many tools. And we talked right at the beginning how sometimes... Uh, we take the approach, the language, the, the, the view, the looking of not-self, no-self, emptiness, and sometimes we take the view of self. And both of these are available to us and should be used by us as practitioners. <coughs> so, right now, today, it's not necessarily the case, this evening, that the emptiness approach is the best for what you're going through. It may be, or it may not be, or an emptiness approach. It might be that actually, right now, for what you are going through at this time, uh, the self-approach, or a self-approach, might be best. And having that, that flexibility, to me, is really, really important. It's a flexibility of view, a flexibility of approach. <clears throat> so sometimes, for example, when the inner critic comes up, Sometimes can be looked at in terms of emptiness. Sometimes, sometimes what's actually helpful is relating in terms of the self, loving oneself, caring for oneself. Um, now, of course, the talks on this retreat are mostly about emptiness because it, just, it feels like there's a lot to say about it. Um, and going right back to the beginning, uh, were it longer, we could talk about a whole lot of other stuff too. But that emptiness is part of the path. It's just that on this retreat we're talking mostly about that. Um, As we practice, as practice develops, as a retreat goes on and practice develops, uh, the development, the deepening and the opening, uh, as you well know, and as I said again right at the beginning, is not linear. It does not happen linearly. It does not happen uh, even particularly smoothly. Uh, It's more like this. Expect a bumpy ride, expect the waves. If I'm not, uh, well, (laughs) I'm in for a rude awakening. Um, As it's like that, sometimes when, whichever way you want to look at it, we we, uh, have the highs, and maybe it's a high in terms of the heart opening in love, or calmness, or whatever, uh, in a way, because of that, that kind of uh, almost sine wavy motion to it, the lows stand out more in contrast. When you, when you keep tasting the openings and the sweetness of that and the highs, when, when there's a trough of, of the wave, it's actually, it feels sometimes even more painful, more difficult. And it's not that one's going backwards, it's just standing out more in contrast. <coughs> so, Given any of that, you know, uh, 7.30 comes or whatever other time, and the talk comes, 
and or the talk on this day or whatever. And it may not feel like the timing of the talk is exactly... Uh, you may not want to hear an, anything more about... You may not hear one more word about emptiness. That's <laughs> 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 up to my ears. I don't want to know. <laughs> um... <laughs> And, you know, that's understandable. Um, people are on very... Of course, everyone's ways is different. This is an emptiness. We're putting that out there. So at, at uh, the beginning of the retreat, I said, you know, we have to kind of... Uh, there's a whole process that we also have to take care of as well inside. So, you know, there may be a feeling of this re- isn't really what I want to be hearing about right now, but, but please see that, that that has to go on and there's a, there's a context here. <clears throat> so, I want to continue um, and, and uh, continue I don't know, unfolding this map, I suppose. And really, really, really no pressure uh, in this talk. You don't have to do anything with it. You really just have to sit back and listen and Hope, hope that it's interesting. And for many of you, not, not for everyone, but for many of you, uh, this will be something for the future. For the future. And that could be years in the future. And I just want to, kind of, again, pointing to the way this uh, possibly unfolds, partly to give you the map, but partly also to fill out the teachings, the implications of the teachings, the fullness of what's being, uh, what's meant here. Uh, and so... It's okay if it feels like, again, that I'm just scattering seeds, or the teachings are just scattering seeds. That's completely fine. <clears throat> so given, given all that, and, and in a way continuing all that, um, we consider <coughs> our life, and our life kind of, our life on the path. And we are, m- most people in here feel quite committed to uh, the sense of the path as, as a kind of lifelong exploration, an exploration of, of, um, of life, an exploration of existence and how one relates to existence, etc. And we consider that in the path, whatever, in the Eightfold Path, whatever, the path of the Dharma, whatever you want to call it. And that includes a lot of things, a lot, a lot, a lot of elements make up what our path is if we're in it for life. Many, many elements, and many, if you like, chapters and periods of that. Some of them are quite extended. Sometimes in a day it feels like it moves between chapters and periods. Some, you know, go on for years. So, the whole uh, capacity we have to be with experience, you know, that's a big um, part of the path cultivating, developing our ability, our willingness to meet experience directly, to uh, become intimate with experience, to open to it, to embrace to it, to bring that simplicity of attention. That's huge, especially in the insight meditation tradition, other traditions, Zen, etc. It's a huge, huge, huge part of practice. Uh, Am I able to be with experience, the the lovely and the difficult and the in-between? And absolutely central to to our path and cultivating this quality of presence of mindfulness of attentiveness and and th- through that uh, strengthening nourishing our intimacy and our connection with uh, with ourselves actually with ourselves 
growing, learning to be more and more intimate and connected with ourselves, and especially uh, the parts that we perhaps have have cut off from, sidelined, hidden, shoved down. Those parts that we are maybe afraid to give attention to, uh, reluctant to admit are there. Uh, huge part of practice is is that willingness to be intimate, learning to be intimate, the art of intimacy with ourselves, the dimensions of ourselves and our experience. <clears throat> so that uh, heartache, that uh, hole inside, that anxiety, whatever it is that feels so hard to draw close to, those parts in particular, what is it to open to that? What is it to inch toward that and to begin meeting it and tasting it and, and uh, ha- have uh, the courage to, to touch that? Huge, huge. Really, really important. The practice also, of course, includes our relationship. It's relational practice is as important. So what about our relationship with others? and ethics, and care for that, and love, and kindness. <clears throat> what about within that, the way we communicate with others? All, all these very significant strands, and perhaps, uh, as I said, periods uh, of our life, where, where this is really at the fore, these, what, whatever the aspects of practice are, they're really at the forefront of what we're investigating, what we're exploring. Really important. Uh, connection with others. Connection with Earth. What is it to, to feel ourselves as earthy beings on this planet, flesh and blood, and know that, connected to animal life, connected to the soil and, 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 the, and the air and the water? You know, so that's, again, massive, massively important part of practice. Connected to life. And then the whole realm of, of practice is about opening the heart. And, and softening the heart and expanding uh, the capacities of the heart in different ways. Whole realms or dimensions, chapters of practice, periods of our life of practice that are about healing, healing ourselves psychologically or, or physiologically, actually. You know, if I think back on my practice, large chunks were, were uh, devoted to, to healing in different ways. Really important. <coughs> especially the psychological and the emotional realms. <clears throat> Aspects and dimensions of practice, it's about expressing oneself, expressing one's truth, expressing one's authenticity, expressing one's creativity. What is it to express the uniqueness of my being creatively, without fear in life? To me, that practice has a lot to do with that, although a part of, that's a part of practice is very significant. Discovering, recovering wholeness, our wholeness. Perhaps something we feel like we've lost. Perhaps something we feel like we're beginning to discover for the first time. A sense of integrate, the being as, as something integrated. Mind, body, spirit, heart. Integrated, integrated. Big part of practice. And in that m- huge area that both John and I have... Uh, I've touched on is the cultivation of beautiful qualities, beautiful qualities of heart, massive, massive uh, part of practice, and often not uh, not kind of given the the weight uh, it it should. The, the, uh, the huge benefit of cultivating generosity, of cultivating loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, all these lists that seem so boring at first, 
and in that at times in retreat or off retreat exploring the kind of range of uh, depths of consciousness or the way that consciousness can open out at times and, and that whole texture of experience and perception changes the highs and depths of consciousness very important and then the whole realm of insight and exploring insight we're talking about ways of looking that bring freedom and, and, and all the possi- possibilities of that uh, using the, the reasoning and the reflective mind we've talked about reasoning what is it also just to think through a situation or an issue or a problem in a way that we're not a victim of thought but we're actually able to use the thinking mind creatively and in a way that's helpful that's a, that's a, a skill in practice has a, a real place <clears throat> so all of that Actually, just in relation to that last one, I just want to throw out um, so these <clears throat> these reasonings that I've been uh, offering at, at a few times, and maybe five or so, I don't know how many of them at different times, um, the point of them is not to uh, in, in, engender a state of perplexity uh, and kind of... Uh, not knowing or befuddlement in in any kind, even in a pleasant kind of way. Uh, it's not also to engender or bring about a state where one says, "I kind of just shrug your shoulders and say, well, we can't really know what's real or whatever or something like that.'" Uh, or um, or even to engender an explanation of how things are. Things are like this. This is how the world is. This is how this object is. <clears throat> Rather, they're supposed to uh, be logical proofs and to come to a conviction of the lack of inherent existence of what it is you're analyzing. And that lack of inherent existence brings freedom. That's, they're in the service of freedom. That was an aside. What... Uh, what I want to go into tonight, given that whole big, big totality of what practice is at different times, and uh, is um, is nirvana. What I want to talk tonight about is nirvana, nibbana in Pali. <coughs> and this is part, if you remember, a couple of nights ago, I talked about these four talks actually spiraling around something. And so this is part of the, the spiral tomorrow night as well. So that word nirvana is used in the tradition. It was used in the, in the Pali Canon by the Buddha and uh, certainly later in Mahayana. It actually gets used in different ways at different times, and that, that's fine. So in a way it has, you could talk about different aspects or dimensions of nirvana or different meanings. It's given different meanings. The one that I want to explore tonight <coughs> is um, nirvana as uh, the unconditioned. If you've been around these uh, circles or reading, uh, you may have come across that term before, the unconditioned or the unfabricated, or sometimes the unborn or the deathless. So these are all, uh, again, if, particularly if you're on insight meditation or other traditions too, you, you will run into this, you will hear this. And that's the aspect I want to explore tonight, the deathless, the unborn, the unconditioned, the unfabricated. So again, still part of the preface, you know, uh, having said all that about practice and about the different strands of practice and the different possible periods of practice, at different times, 
different of those uh, elements feel more important. They pull more at the heartstrings. So, for some, what I'm talking about tonight, the deathless, will feel very, uh, very uh, resonant with the heart. For others, they're in a slightly different chapter, either tonight or in this part in their life, and doesn't seem to something else. Maybe it's the healing thing. Maybe it's something else. That's what feels is really pulling at the heartstrings. <coughs> at any time when we're practicing, uh, it's important to have a connection with the reasons for practicing that feel really meaningful for ourselves. In other words, I might give a talk on the on fabricated or emptiness or something, but it's important that practice feel meaningful at that time for you. In other words, of all these different chapters, something there is is grabbing you. Do you understand know what I'm saying? That makes sense? Nick? Um, I just said there's all these dimensions of practice. Tonight I'm going to talk about one. It may or may not have any emotional resonance with you at all. Yeah. What I'm saying, though, is even if it doesn't, it's important in our practice, in our years of practice, to feel like we're in touch, emotionally connected to the reasons why we're practicing. In other words, I, you know, I, I speak with a lot of people, and sometimes I get a sense from people, or they tell me that they don't know why they're practicing. Or sometimes a person doesn't realize that, but you actually realize that their reasons for practicing are not really heartfelt anymore. They're practicing because someone said, you should this or should that, and a little time has gone by, and one's actually not really in contact with a heartfelt reason for oneself that makes sense for practicing. That seems to be quite common. So I, I'm saying that, despite whatever I or John or anyone else talks about, that we should have a sense of, I know why I'm practicing, and it's 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 something that really connects to my heart. It makes sense for me why I'm practicing. But it could be any of those, or, or more, or a combination. Okay, so this, whatever word we say, the unfabricated, the deathless, the unconditioned. Sometimes you will, and I think I might have mentioned this already in a talk, sometimes you, you hear someone uh, talking about that, and listening to what they say, or what they write, or whatever, um, and I'm maybe asking questions, you realize that what they're talking about is that vastness of awareness that we uh, talked about uh, two weeks ago, whenever it was. And that in the beauty of that, and in the opening of the consciousness in that way, uh, it almost seems like, as we, as we talked about, every phenomena, uh, phenomena are arising out of that, and kind of dying, born out of it, and kind of dying back into it. But that thing seems like it just stays. It just stays. And one thinks, birth and death seem to be in that thing, but that thing seems to be beyond birth and death. It seems to be deathless. I might go in and out of that experience, and personally, maybe I'm just in and out of contact with that thing. But still there's a sense of birth and death taking place in that thing, perhaps that thing feeling deathless. So a person either wonders, is that the unconditioned, or, or goes ahead and says, that is the deathless, that is the unfabricated, that is the unborn, etc. Vast space of awareness. Sometimes, occasionally, sometimes we'll say the now is that because the now also seems endlessly now, etc. So that's one one position. In a way, we've already gone into that, um, but I'll speak again about it tonight. <coughs> Other times, you come across opinions um, or, or you know that get voiced and by some scholars, etc. 
who say the Buddha was, has been mistranslated and misrepresented by any any words like the unfabricated or the deathless or the unconditioned. And and they'll say, if you look in the Pali Canon, you'll find only one instance where that's the case. And there is no deathless. And um, uh, it's one, one, as I said, one instance uh, that's... Uh, that's actually mistranslation and, and not, not truth. Um, what I'm interested in is practice and where practice goes and what practice shows us. Not so much, uh, to me, that sounds like an intellectual position. Again, oftentimes if you ask someone, you realize that it's not a practice, uh, a practice realization that they've come to. It's more of an intellectual position that they've arrived at. Other times, I'm kind of lay, laying out the territory because I'm going to explain. This is actually very loaded. It might not feel loaded for you, especially if this is the first time you're hearing about it. But actually, in the Dharma world, this is a very loaded area. Others will say the teachings of emptiness are actually contradictory to the teachings of an unconditioned or, or unfabricated. And it's only Hinayana teachings that teach about an unfabricated, in a kind of derogatory sense. <clears throat> but actually, just on that, there's um, a, uh, a text by Nagarjuna called Praise of the Supramundane. Supramundane means uh, beyond or above the world, the world of the senses. And he says, uh, the Buddha, you, you, the Buddha, have said that there is no liberation so long as the absence of representation is not realized. As the absence of representation means thingness. Uh, in, I guess the point I'm making is, it is present in slightly different language in Mahayana teachings as well. Sometimes you've heard uh, something, uh, people refer to the Dharmakaya. Have heard that word? That bears a relationship with what, um, what more Theravadan people say, unfabricated, etc. Well, I'm really, one of the things I'm really, really interested in, so we're talking about something uh, the Buddha, or the, some people seem to be saying that the Buddha is talking about something transcendent. Transcendent to the world, transcendent to the mind, and transcendent to the senses. And some people say, uh, there is that, and it's important, it's important to realize it. And some people say, there is not that. Uh, the Buddha has no interest in anything transcendent at all. It's a mistake of a typical human mistake to hunt for something transcendent, something beyond this world and beyond the senses. What do you want to be the answer? What do you want to be the answer? <coughs> this is an important question because what I notice in teaching and in talking to people is that oftentimes people have pre-decided this. They've pre-decided what the answer is. And I've, I've run into this, I can't, I've lost count of how many times. In actually quite an emotionally charged way, they've pre-decided. So I'm going to shut up for ten seconds and you just look inside. I, you just look inside and see what you want. What would you like? <laughs> is, what is the question? Is there a transcendent, something transcendent to this world, transcendent to the senses, transcendent to the mind, and uh, does it have any significance whatsoever?
Um, I'm actually really curious, but I'm not going to ask. <laughs> I'm not going to ask. I will assume, as as usual, that there's both camps in this room, and there usually always is. There usually always is. Um, but the reason maybe I'm doing more than both camps. maybe more than both camps. Yeah, <laughs> good point. But um, but the reason I'm doing that is because uh, I, I really notice this tendency to predecide and to want it to be one way or another. And I think it's really important in in the context of integrity and self-honesty to know what we are bringing to any kind of investigation. Know where we're leaning, how we're uh, maybe biased through whatever conditions or predispositions, etc. But let's let's look at this. Let's look at this in terms of the practices we've been doing, and in terms of the teachings. So, a couple, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I started harping on about this thing fading, about this phenomena of fading, of perception, experience, thing fading. As we cling less, as there's less and less push and pull, uh, with practice, the experience is perceptions fade. Uh, as there's less selfing, less identification, similarly, the, experience, the perceptions fade. And as there's less delusion as well, the experiences begin on a spectrum to begin to fade. Uh, as we let go and as we um, let go of I- identifying with the things, the aspects of experience that we usually identify with. <clears throat> and on that we said it can get very subtle, for instance, including identifying with consciousness and including, for example, identifying with the intention to pay attention. Very, very subtle. The intention to pay attention. Default got a sense of I, mine, mine. And learning actually, with, with practice, with time, to actually even unhook the identification from that. There is just this intention to pay attention. Um, or when we're seeing something as empty and just knowing that it's empty and just looking at it with this lens on it's empty, uh, including awareness, as I was talking about in the last two talks, including that, with all that, there will be this continuum of fading, this continuum of the fading of perception. Now, to move on that continuum, and I think I've said this, but it's really worth repeating, to move on that continuum as a practitioner, um, I would say, uh, and this goes back to near the opening talk, it actually needs some samadhi. The samadhi and the metta really, really help. Why? Because as things fade, uh, the sense of self fades, the sense of the world fades, um, we, the, one of the functions of the samadhi is to, is to soften the fear to allay the fear. It will have that function of allaying the fear and actually um, bringing warmth into the being so that it doesn't feel like we've just been uh, hurled into interstellar space in some cold vacuum. It'll actually bring warmth in and, uh, and, and soften the fear. Um, in a way, and I've only thrown this out a couple of times and not in any detail, I'm not going to throw it out in any detail tonight either, but in a way, <coughs> when, when people go through the jhanas, and there's eight jhanas, it actually relates to a question Richard asked once in here. Um, there's two reasons why that even that degree of samadhi is important. Remember, I'm just throwing out a map here, so if it doesn't relate to where you feel you've covered, I'm just putting out the information. One is that um, samadhi itself, or the progress of samadhi through the jhanas, and it, you know, bliss, happiness, peace, stillness, infinite space, 
infinite consciousness, nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception, classical jhanas, that is actually a spectrum of fading. It's a spectrum of fading of perception. Percept- the body sense gets more subtle, more refined. The body perception gets more refined. And then, and then the self-sense and the world sense. It's all a, a process of fading. So one's actually, by going through samadhi, uh, one's actually having an experience of, of fading to some degree anyway. As significant is the fact that very often, especially the formalist jhanas, those ones of infinite space, etc., get mistaken for the unconditioned, the unfabricated, the deathless. And a person uh, who doesn't have that experience and that map will very easily mistake an experience, say, of nothingness as the unfabricated. So there's also a reason why that's important. and I can't remember when I said this, but it's also important to realize that when things fade or when things disappear in that, se- in that way to whatever degree, we begin to get more and more uh, uh, confident, uh, safe in the realization that we're not actually losing or letting go of anything really real because it's actually empty anyway. It's fabricated. So these two understandings go together. They make this whole journey into this fading, you know, little lot come back, little come back, deeper and deeper, gradually. They make it feel much more safe, much more doable, much more okay. So this spectrum of fading has everything to do with a spectrum of less and less fabrication. It's on its way to possibly something beyond the experience of the world. By samadhi, you mean meditation? By samadhi, I mean uh, concentration. Really. Yeah. <clears throat> so listen to this from the Buddha. Samyutta Nikaya 35, uh, verse 117. He's talking to a group of monks. Monks, that dimension should be known where, literally, where the eye stops, where vision stops and the perception of form fades. That dimension should be known where the ear, where hearing stops and the perception of sound fades, where the nose stops and the perception of aroma fades, where the tongue stops and the perception of flavor fades, where the body stops and the perception of tactile sensation fades, where the intellect or mind stops and the perception of ideas or phenomena fades. That dimension should be known. The reference again. Samyutta Nikaya 35117. Uh, another one, uh, Anguttara Nikaya uh, in the 11s, num- uh, verse 10. Uh, actually, the whole sutta, I think, but he's talking about going beyond the perception of the four elements, the perception of um, uh, the perception of material form, going beyond the perception of everything, all, calls it the all or the totality, and going beyond the perception of all those eight jhanas. Uh, in the Sutta Nipata, um, he's talking to one particular seeker, and he, he says to him uh, something like, by knowing the destruction of fabrications, by dis- the destruction of what is fabricated, be a knower of the unmade, the akata, the unmade, by knowing the destruction of the fabricated, be a knower of the unmade, of what is unmade. <clears throat> so, in reference to yesterday's talk, we talked about this tripod of, su- of um, subject, object, and time. 
what the Buddha's pointing to is when that tripod, so beginning to see the mutual dependency, the mutual emptiness, one's uh, taking away the support for that tripod, the belief in the inherent existence, uh, or pulling at one or the other, and the whole thing begins to collapse. Uh, gone beyond the world, the typical world, transcending the world of subject, object, and time. So, and this came up, I think, in in the um, question and answer yesterday. Sometimes, sometimes a person will say, oh, "I remember reading this thing about a guy who pedaled uh, a, a pedal boat across the Atlantic or Pacific. Can't remember." And he said, you know, he was on his own in this little boat and pedaling away all day. And, <laughs> you know, and it got quite meditative at times. Uh, but he wasn't a meditator. He had never had any experience of that kind of thing. Only afterwards did he get interested in meditation. He said he realized now that at a certain stretch, uh, he got into what he was calling an experience of totally non-dual awareness. He said the subject-object duality just faded. Reading and explaining what actually happened, uh, what actually happened was he just got quite absorbed in what he was doing. There was not much else going on, and he was pretty <laughs> focused <laughs> on. Just had to survive. <laughs> yeah, and and nothing else was distracting him. He just he was just pedaling, pedaling, pedaling. <laughs> what actually happened was a state of samadhi. It's a state of just more absorption in in what's going on in that moment. It's a long way from that to what the Buddha's talking about about this whole tripod fading, ceasing, cessation. Long, long way. So it's a very different thing. Uh, so in his case, w- when he described it in more detail in the next paragraph, basically the, the chatter of his mind that he'd, you know, he wasn't even aware of any of this. He notices he started pedaling, and then who's with me? Oh, it's my mind. Rabbit, 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 rabbit. <laughs> so this was a time in this stretch that actually that chatter got got quieter, and the distracted mind got quieter, and there was more of a sense of kind of oneness with the pedaling and the movement of the body. It's just absorption in that. And in this spectrum, the self-sense was less. You notice that. But that's not... We need to be strict and precise about it. It's not an experience of totally non-dual awareness. Lovely as it was for him, and it actually sent him on a, on a real path, etc. Uh, but it's still some degree on that spectrum. So I keep going back to this concept of the spectrum, because actually a lot can be corralled in it, in terms of the teachings. So, if we don't understand uh, this um, way that perceptions, experience, object, all that is fabricated, as I've been describing in in the talks over the days, if we don't understand it, uh, um, and there's no no fading of that, we're not talking about what the Buddha's getting at with this. You know, some, something else. Now, when the Buddha says this dimension should be known, so very easily a practitioner can get into a mode where they're chasing this experience, especially when, when meditation gets very deep and you actually get a sense of kind of some, something is around that's kind of uh, really beyond what one knows. And really, uh, it's almost like um, the little, you know, <laughs> picked up on the radar screen and kind of go for it. And you can actually feel, basically what happens is, a contr- you, sometimes you get away with it, but usually, usually a contraction comes in, it's a form of clinging, and you just end up shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, so it's not that we're chasing experience in, in the way I feel is best with all this. It's not so much that we're, we're chasing experience of this unfabricated. It's much rather that what's much more important is we want to see this, we talk about dependent arising, talk about dependent fading. 
We want to see this dependent fading over and over and over. Because that's where the insight is. Things don't fade randomly. They don't just fade because they're impermanent. Remember I was talking about this, dropping this. There's a principle going on here that has to do with the way uh, the whole of our experience is fabricated, built, uh, etc. So uh, if we're playing, as we were talking about yesterday, with this triangle of self-thing time, self-thing time, really playing with that in a way that starts to take away the support of that, tri- of that tripod. Actually take it away and see things, um, see self-thing time fade, uh, collapse to some degree. It's that understanding and it's that insight that comes out of that, of really taking on board the implications of what that means. That's what frees. Uh, rather than an experience. And there are people who report uh, kind of textbook experiences of um, this uh, cessation experience of an unfabricated. And it hasn't made any difference in their life, or very little. Now, maybe they've had the wrong experience, maybe they just haven't had any understanding. They just haven't had any understanding. Uh, so, for some, um, well, I'm really not saying that experiences are irrelevant. I, I do not want to say that at all. But um, what's important is the insight that we take out of it. So ideally, you know, a practitioner moves in and out of any experiences of emptiness. You're all having experience of emptiness to some degree or another, all, all of you. And if it goes into the fading, then to some degree of, of that. But it's the understanding. And the understanding feeds the experience, and the experience feeds the understanding. Like that. So we talk about dependent origination, and, and the Buddha always, when he talks about dependent origination, talks about dependent cessation. What does it mean, cessation? Dependent cessation. What does it mean not to build, not to build? So in the <coughs> morning after his awakening in the mythological story, in, in he, he uh, utters this spontaneous verse, house builder, you've been seeing your... Uh, ridgepole has been shattered, your roof beams have been scattered, etc. You can interpret that in different ways. But to me, the most significant meaning is, I've seen this building of experience, I've seen this building of the world, this building of the world of experience, the world of perception and consciousness, etc., in the, in the usual way. I've seen it in a way that can uh, not build it. So when he talks about the five aggregates as well, and talks about investigating them, he says, such is form, or such is feeling, or whatever, and such its origination, and such its disappearance. In in other words, to understand the aggregates, such such is form, vedana, perception, etc. Such its origination, such its disappearance. The such, to me, there, not doesn't mean such its disappearance, in other words, it's impermanent, it means why it's impermanent, how it arises, how it gets built, how the aggregates get built as an experience, and how they how they actually get not built. Here's another one from the Buddha. Um, I'm partly doing this just because of those people that say there's only one reference to it, and it's, I could have filled the whole talk with just quotes from the Buddha that refer to this. Um, I feel it's a little misrepresentative. 
This actually refers to, uh, remember I was talking about that analogy of two sheaves of corn. Uh, it is, I think this is Sarap. I'm not sure who's talking. It is as if two sheaves of reeds stood leaning against one another. In the same way, from Nama Rupa, um, in other words, what that really means is the process of the perceiving mind. Nama Rupa, as a requisite condition, comes consciousness. From consciousness, as a requisite condition, comes Nama Rupa. And then from Nama Rupa, as a requisite condition, comes uh, the next link, sense, sense contact, etc., etc., and then all to the entire mass of stress and suffering. If one were to pull away one of those sheaves of reeds, the other would fall. If one were to pull away the other, the first one would fall. Consciousness and perception. Consciousness and Nama Rupa, we've already talked about. Consciousness and the processes of the perceiving mind. In the same way, from the cessation of Nama Rupa comes the cessation of consciousness. From the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of Nama Rupa. From the cessation of Nama Rupa comes the cessation of all the way around the other the other links, the whole mass, this entire mass of stress and suffering. Um, what does it mean for consciousness to cease? What does it mean? Uh, consciousness, remember, is knowing. Knowing of the six, knowing in the realms of the six sense spheres. In other words, the whole world of experience, inner and outer, that we have. <coughs> that that consciousness fading, that consciousness seeding, ce- ceasing. Excuse me. Um. <coughs> this is another passage, uh, Samyutta Nikaya. 12, verse 51. That last one was Samyutta Nikaya 12, verse 67. Uh, he's talking to a group of monks, and he's asking them a series of questions, and he said, would a practitioner whose uh, fermentations or effluence, whose outflows are ignorance, attachment to sense pleasure, attachment to being or becoming, and I use that word being as well as a translation of bhava, it's not just becoming, being, attachment to being, attachment to sense pleasure, to ignorance, and attachment to views, when those are ended, uh, would they fabricate, would they build uh, a meritorious or even an unmeritorious fabrication? In other words, would they build something unlovely or something lovely uh, in that state? Uh, no, comes the answer from the monks. And then the Buddha continues, with the total non-existence of fabrications, of sankharas, of that which builds, from the cessation of fabrications, would consciousness be discernible? Answer, no. Says good monks. And then he asks, would Namarupa be discernible? And then going through all the links of the twelve, would aging and death be discernible? No. And he says, very good monks, just so should you construe it. Just so should you be convinced. Just so should you believe. Do not be doubtful. Do not be uncertain. This, just this, is the end of Dukkha. Um, another one. This is very, very interesting quotes. So, he, listen to this one. I'll, I'll read it first. Uh, Samyutta Nikaya 2, verse 65. If uh, if one neither wills nor determines 
nor is occupied with anything. There is no arising of an object for the persistence of consciousness. There being no object, there is no foothold for consciousness. In other words, this mutual dependency. No, um, in other words, no willing, no deterring, no occupying with anything is the same thing as saying there's no clinging. Or we've seen the emptiness of it, there's no reason to be occupied with it. It's empty. It's empty. That uh, um, gives no nothing for consciousness to lean on in, in its leaning on Nama Rupa. Does it make sense? Yeah. Um, so, building, fabricating, these are the Buddha's words. Fabricating is actually a really, I think, a really great translation for Sankara or Sankara-ing or whatever the verb is. Um, in English, uh, two words are really great for translating sankara, and they're fabricating and concocting. The reason is because they give uh, an impression of building something. We fabricate, you know, this or that. We fabricate, you know, you talk about prefab house, a prefab uh, whatever. Or, um, uh, concocting, again, I, I put something together. But th the second implication in English of that meaning is, you say, a fabrication is a lie. It's something that's not quite really real. It's not quite really... I don't know if there's a double meaning in, in Pali, uh, when the Buddha originally used the, the words, but uh, it's actually very good in English to talk about fabrications or concoctions, because we're building something. In the very building of it, it's not something real. Um, when the more we see that, the more insight we have, and that's why I keep saying practice, you, you build the steps, and, and eventually you, read, you reach... a some degree of conviction that things are built, that the experience, perception, object, thing is empty because it's built, uh, partly because it's built. And that, um, you realize, any self-sense, any perception, experience, object, any time sense, any consciousness is all fabricated. That seeing of its fabricated nature even brings more of, of this, what I've been calling, holy disinterest, holy kind of letting go. In the Buddha's words, one doesn't relish them. One doesn't relish either the objects of consciousness or the consciousness. One does not relish. Uh, and that non-relishing is a huge level of letting go, a very deep level of letting go. It's, it's as if right there in the meditation there's a sense of, there's nothing here for me or for anyone, actually. Nothing here uh, in this whole realm of what we could call samsara, the whole realm of experience. There's nothing, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. And seeing that, seeing the emptiness of it, it's like there's a very deep letting go. This, this relinquishment, to use the Buddha's words, from non-relishing. So again, it's a way of looking. You're pursuing these ways of looking. They begin to build on each other until they bring a really deep conviction and ability to not relish in that moment, to relinquish, to let go. Are you guys okay? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, I can't remember the source of this uh, sutta. I think it's somewhere in the Samyutta Nikaya, maybe in the section on aggregates. I'm pretty sure it's in the section on aggregates somewhere. He describes this building, fabricating process. The analogy he gives is of a painter painting a mural on a wall. And it says the aggregates, uh, all the aggregates, form... Uh, Vedana, perception, mental formations and conscious are like uh, someone painting on a wall, painting a man or painting a woman on a wall. Seeing that, uh, when there's no craving, uh, 
for things, for contact then, in any that gets less and less and less, something, something uh, in the spectrum of fading, something fades even more. So, it's interesting, I think I threw this out at one point, uh, there's a large current in Indian uh, relig- re- religiosity or spirituality uh, for two things. One is for the transcendent. It's not, by, even at the time of the Buddha, it was not the only uh, way of looking at things at all. That, that again, is a slight misrepresentation. Uh, there were many schools of philosophy and religious philosophy. Some were completely uh, this world oriented, kind of nihilistic and hedonistic, actually. Um, and some were more transcendent. So there was, there was uh, quite a spectrum there. Um, but there is a strong current in Indian philosophical traditions of, of something that moves towards the transcendent and also something that loves formulating things in, in negatives. Not this, not that, not, not, not. And actually that's shared with a lot of the deeper mystical traditions. They feel safer and in a way more accurate to describe the ineffable or what's more ultimate in terms of negatives. However, and, and actually in line with that, and I don't know where this is quotes from, it's from the Pali Canon somewhere, the Buddha says uh, about this unfabricator, about this state, where all phenomena cease, all ways of speaking cease. And someone says, can you describe it? Or can you, you know, and actually he says, you can't go there because language has its limits. Language is, is based on subject-object time. And where all phenomena cease, all phenomena cease, all ways of speaking cease. However, having said that, there are a few passages in the Pali Canon where the Buddha does uh, talk in positive terms about this. So, uh, this is a quite a beautiful one, and quite a sort of, um, well, this is some Yutta Nikaya 12, number 64. And he's giving an analogy, I think it's to Ananda. Um, it says, just as if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall having windows on the north, south, and east. Okay, so it's a, it's a, 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 a room like this with um, three, three of the sides have windows. When the sun rises and a ray has entered by way of the window, where does it land? And Ananda says, on the western wall. And then the Buddha says, and if there is no western wall? On the ground. And the Buddha says, and if there is no ground? He says, on the water. Ananda says, on the water. And there's an idea that the earth kind of rested on water. On the water. And if there is no water? Ananda says, it does not land. Do you, do you get the image? This does not land. And the Buddha says, in the same way, when there is no craving, no craving for things, for consciousness, for contact, for intention, consciousness does not land or grow. Consciousness does not land or grow. That, I tell you, that, I tell you, has no sorrow, affliction, or despair. This is a more positive image there. Um, There's also a sutta, and I can't remember where it is, again, I think it's in the Samyutant Nikaya in the section on the unconditioned, where the Buddha actually gives synonyms for Nibbana. And uh, some of them are very beautiful. So I think there's 37, I think. And uh, some of them, so these are synonyms for the unconditioned, the unfabricated, 
the truth, the subtle, the very difficult to see, listen, the unmanifest, the unmanifest, the sublime, the amazing. Okay, so there's a definite predisposition and uh, preference for the negative terminology, but it, it's still there in the Pali Canon is the positive terminology. So if we take that consciousness not landing, consciousness not landing on an object, uh, consciousness without object, sometimes people talk about awareness without an object, something has happened there. Usually, our usual sense of the world and consciousness is consciousness is actually, we, we don't know what it is for consciousness to not be bound up, wrapped up with a world of objects and time and, um, and subject. It's wrapped up in that trinity that I was talking about, that tripod that I was talking about yesterday. And consciousness as we know it is consciousness in that realm. Objects, things, subjects and time. Uh, and what is it for that, through not being built, that whole structure of that trinity to unbind, to collapse, to dissolve? And then in, in the positive, what would it be for awareness then to be without an object? Which is different than awareness knowing itself, which would actually be the sixth jhana infinite consciousness. Awareness knowing itself. So, knowing, awareness without an object... Uh, it's not that this unfabricated awareness, so to speak, knows other objects or knows the small mind or the small self or something like that. The true self knows the small self or something like that. It's not that the small mind and the machinations and the thought of that and, and all that is somehow in this bigger mind either and somehow contained in it. It's somehow gone beyond all that. It's gone beyond all that. So Indians' predilection for the, or there is a stream in Indian for the transcendent, etc. Uh, and I threw this out at one point. Uh, Japanese and Chinese, very much not so. Very much not so. The leaning in this uh, thing is more to the phenomenal, the tangible, the, um, the beauty of this moment and, and the uniqueness and the impermanence and the poetry of that but very much this worldly and tangible and it pervades uh, the art and, and the, the, the uh, spiritual traditions Taoism uh, as well as Buddhism actually not, not completely but there's one Zen teacher which um, uh, quite rare because he, he, he he's an odd one out uh, I'm sure he's not the only one Huang Po, his name is, really really one of the real um, hardcore, enigmatic, uh, beautiful, be- I, I absolutely love him, uh, Huang Po. So his language for this is pure mind or real mind, the real mind. And he says, this pure mind, the people of the world do not awake to it. This is it. Regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of that truth. In other words, spiritual, so it's not luminosity as a perception. The spiritual brilliance of that truth. And then he goes on, realize that though real mind is expressed in these perceptions, it neither forms part of them, nor is separate from them. 
when did what, what's his his dates we oui. um roughly can't remember often middle ages sometime but i yeah sorry um you know Six seven hundred. Yeah, I'm not sure. He's he's pretty early. Yeah, um, but remarkable, remarkable teacher, and and really, really strong. You know, but quite rare in in the um, Japanese Ch- Chinese culture. Which is leading the other way. I'm going to go. This is part of spiral again. As I said, these four talks part of spiral. So some things I say tonight, I will revisit tomorrow night, and maybe in a slightly different context. Uh, Buddha from the Pali Canon, uh, the Diganikaya, uh, number 11. Again, talking more positively, more in positive terms, consciousness without feature, uh, I think a better translation for that is non-manifestative consciousness. Consciousness that doesn't manifest an object. Consciousness without feature, without boundary, luminous all around. Here, water, earth, fire and air have no footing here, long and short, coarse and fine, beautiful and ugly, all those dualities and those perceptions, uh, nama, nama and rupa, in other words, mental processes of perception, the perceptions of form, are all brought to an end. They're all brought to an end. With the stopping of the six sense consciousnesses, each is here brought to an end. Um, there's another passage where it's almost exactly the same, but he just adds that exactly what he said does not partake of the uh, four elements, does not partake of the material world, does not partake of um, any of the realms of the samadhis, does not partake of any of the objects in, in the totality of what we experience as the world. This is Udana uh, number 80. And again, he's, talk- he's talking about the same thing. There, I declare, there, I declare, is no coming and no going, no stopping, no passing away and no arising. It is apartitam. Apartitam it means without foundation. It's without foundation, without establishment. Uh, it has no support of a mental object, an aramanam. And the one that what I really want to highlight right now is it's apawatang. In Sanskrit, uh, I think it's from the root prawurta, which means to continue. It continues not. It does not continue. And he says, this indeed is the end of suffering. It continues not. It's not in time. It's not of time. It's gone beyond that uh, that trinity. So when people talk about the deathless, one of the problems with this vast awareness thing is that it has a sense of eternality, as in it goes on and on and on forever and everything else arises and passes. That's not what the Buddha's pointing to. He's talking about something that uh, is, is beyond the fabrication of time. So there's another sutta where someone's asking Sariputra about, Sariputta about this, and he says, well, okay, when there is this opening. With the remainderless stopping and fading of the six sense spheres of contact, is it the case that there is anything else, that there then is something else there? And Sariputta says, don't say that, my friend. And so he says, okay, well, should we say there is not anything else then when that all fades completely? And Sariputta says, don't say that, my friend. 
And so the guy says, all right, is it both that it is and it isn't? And he says, don't say that. <laughs> is it, it that it neither is nor isn't? And so he just says, don't say that. And he said, why? He said, Saraputra says, that would be to complicate what is beyond complication. It would be to papancha is what is beyond papancha. So this word papancha that you most be familiar with is like the mind kind of gone crazy with something. It's stressed. Again, that's a spectrum. That's a spectrum. This, what the Buddha's calling the death of the unfabricated nibbana, it's it's the ending of papancha, and that's sometimes what he refers to as the ending of papancha. Papancha is on a spectrum as well. When. I want to go back to this um, pre-deciding thing. When a person has an, that experience or uh, that kind of degree of fading, it's, I feel there, would, there will not be a rush to say, it isn't real, it is real, it exists or not exists. It's, it's a realm that's beyond that, uh, that kind of distinction. As Sariputra just said, one would be very hesitant to say, there is no deathless. Uh, or equally hesitant to say, it's the only thing that really has inherent existence. I think with wisdom there would be just some mm, hesitancy there. Sometimes people call that emptiness with a capital E, but um, <clears throat> remember going back, to, I think, to the very first talk, emptiness, strictly speaking, is an adjective, and so emptiness is not a thing we arrive at, it's a uh, something that's relative to something. It's an adjective. This thing or that thing is empty. Uh, but for different reasons, people seem to, or a lot of people, it seem to have an allegiance, a pre-deciding one way or another. I'm going to revisit this tomorrow, uh, the reasons for that. A, a deciding one way or another, I'm for it, I'm against it, it's definitely not real, it doesn't exist, it's not important, it really is, it really is the ultimate, it really... Uh, very, very interesting. I remember, I can't remember when it was, but um, I must have been talking about this, and... Um, I don't remember how it happened, but two two uh, practitioners that I know um, <clears throat> said they, I don't know if it was after a talk I gave or before, anyway, it doesn't matter. They were talking, and they got in, two really lovely people um, got into an argument about this. One of them I've never known to ever get in an argument about anything, uh, and the other was also a very nice person. The interesting thing was, and I don't know how long the argument lasted, I think it was quite a while, and this, it was the first time they'd ever argued about anything. They were good friends. And the uh, first time they'd ever argued about anything. And what, what was really interesting to me when one of them told me uh, later was that neither of them had experienced it. It was completely, completely uh, based on uh, some kind of ideational... Uh, uh, intellectual allegiance, this this way or that, and it was so, and it was it was describing really quite charged. I find that fascinating, <laughs> absolutely fascinating. I'm gonna I'm gonna revisit this, just part of the spiral thing that I'm, I've been talking about. At first, when one experiences, I think it's probably normal to to feel it as some kind of object for the mind in a very kind of transcendent way. It's an object for the mind. Um, 
it turns out uh, that it's not really an object in that sense. Um, <clears throat> one of my teachers, Ajahn Jeff, talks, uses a better word for nirvana as unbinding. Unbinding. Nir is a negative. Vana, you can actually, you can, there's a few etymologies. One is uh, nirvana as in blowing out. Vana like wind. Vana, wind. Uh, it's like a extinguishing something. Uh, also, vine, I think, maybe related to the word vine, I'm not sure, but um, uh, vine as in something that binds something. And, and what's happening is unbinding of this whole uh, house of cards structure, this whole self-things time, uh, binding tripod trinity, an unbinding of that. Yes, yeah, so as I said, Nibbana has lots of different meanings, and tonight the meaning I'm exploring is Nibbana as the unfabricated. Okay, <coughs> um, But it does have different meanings, that's important to, to yeah, be aware of. Um, so a better way of understanding actually what's going on is there's an unbinding of consciousness, object, and time. That whole magic show is unbound. It's... it's, it's uh, unsupported and unbound. And all we can say is that uh, there's an unbinding. So it's not so much a thing. Unraveling. Unraveling, yes. Except, um, usually when we talk about, uh, they're good words, but as I'm saying it, there's also limitations, because sometimes when we unravel, we end up with the pieces of string that were originally, and it's like actually not even that, you know. Um, I'm going to revisit part of this tomorrow night because I actually think it's okay in the same way that I said when, when we're talking about the vastness of awareness and I said to people it's really okay if you want to give that a kind of ultimate significance for a while it's really really okay I would rather you did that than just poo poo it and skip over it and not drink of the freedom and the beauty and the peace and the uh, the love that comes from that. Even more so with this level of things. So for me, it's it's actually really okay if uh, if if um, one gives it a kind of ultimate reality for a while. Um, okay, just to wrap up. Um, again, I really really stress. It's the understanding that's more important than the experience. It's, it's way more important than the experience. Um, there is a continuum of fading that we've been talking about for you know, more than two weeks now. Continuum of fading. And in a, in a way, the end of that continuum is, is what we could call the unfabricated or unfabricated or unbinding or whatever. Um, if one has an experience, it should bring that understanding, or the, to the degree that one's moving on that spectrum of fading, it should bring that understanding that all is empty, uh, that, that the nature of all things is emptiness, is, is empty. There's a beautiful quote, and I'm not sure where this is from, it's from the Pali Canon somewhere. Someone who's seen that, understood all that, um, he or she is conjuring free, Free of conjuring. Free of uh, compulsively creating this spell, this magical illusion. illusion. Yeah, Free of illusion and, and the, the, the spell of that illusion, as in the other references we talk about with illusion. Conjuring free and does not submit to conjuring. 
uh, does not submit to conjuring and the cycling of time. So, it's interesting, you know, uh, given people's predilections, given also people, as I said, right back to where, where a talk like this lands, and I know it lands in very different places and people are going through very different things. Some of you are completely bored by now. <laughs> um, uh, it's the understanding that's important. It's the understanding that's important. Um, all practice is in the service of that, is in the service of that. Uh, so any level of emptiness we see, uh, we can absorb the understanding of that and develop that and develop that. Um, the more we do that, the more we cultivate the beautiful qualities, the more we, uh, more insight we have, the more insight into emptiness we have, and we travel that path. Basically, the more able we are to let go, our ability to let go in life uh, increases, and with that comes more and more freedom and more and more capacity to give, capacity to love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.